Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to this episode of the Addicted Mind Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. This is episode six with Eric Osterland, a psych nurse. I'm excited because he's going to share a lot of information about acute care and working in a psych hospital. This is a place where people come in when they're really struggling immediately with suicidality, a harm to others, a harm to themselves gravely disabled and he's kind of going to go through what to expect and what goes on there so that's very exciting also he's my brother which is kind of cool we both work in the mental health field which is pretty awesome also just so you know we filmed this at my house and there's a couple planes in the background so hopefully that won't be too bothersome and you can hear everything clearly so i'm excited to have you guys talk about this and here we go Hello, everyone. I'm excited today. I have a very special guest today. His name is Eric Osterland, and he is my brother. And he is a psych nurse and works in different psych hospitals. And so he's going to talk a little bit today about his experience working in those situations, working in the hospitals, working with a lot of acute patients. So, Eric, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, it's good to be here. I am a psych nurse. I work in two different acute facilities. I also work in the ER, so I deal with psych patients in the ER as well. I've been doing this for quite a while now. I enjoy it, but I see mostly the acute side of mental health. So the patients that I am seeing are either having a psychotic break or they're major depressive and they're, you know, just had a suicide attempt or something of that nature. It's really serious part of it when it's gotten really acute. So these are the clients that are really struggling with a problem right now, right in the here and now. They have, like you said, they're dealing with suicide. So it's really, you have to 
take action in this moment. Yeah. So with acute nursing, our main goal is to keep them safe at that time. The therapy happens afterwards, after we get them over the hump or over the severe attempt. They get medically cleared, they come to us, and we make sure they're safe for at least, we watch them for a minimum, usually 72 hours. So these are clients that may be put on like a mandatory hold. Maybe the pet teen has done an evaluation of them and said, okay, we can keep you here for 72 hours for your safety or the safety of others. Correct. Yeah. Most of them come in, not all, but most come in on a 72-hour hold called the 5150. Now, I deal with adults. I don't really deal with pediatrics or juveniles. So it's a different hold for adults and juveniles. But with adults, it's a 5150, which is a 72-hour hold. And they can come in for either danger to self or danger to others or gravely disabled. And what happens with that is danger to self is self-explanatory. They were either trying to overdose or cut themselves or hang themselves. We've had all kinds of attempts. And then once they get medically cleared, they come to us and they stay for at least 72 hours. Our average at one of the places I work is four to five days. That's our average length of stay. But they can stay much longer depending on if they need it or not. Tell me a little bit about like a client comes in to one of those facilities. Are they voluntarily coming in or are the police bringing them in or? Good question. So they come in several different ways. Either one, they might be at their therapist's office and start saying that they're feeling suicidal. And then the therapist will sometimes call the police or if they know somebody that can write 5150s, they call them in and get them evaluated. Sometimes they'll even say to the client, you need to go to this hospital. They go to the hospital and then we evaluate them there. Then we have people that come in on PD holds, police holds. So somebody might have had an active suicide attempt. They bring them to the hospital and then they get them medically cleared and bring them in. With that, a therapist might call and ask us to put them on a hold or evaluate them or ask the patient to actually go to the hospital if they feel the patient is not safe enough to get themselves to the hospital. The other option is we have a lot of times family members bring the patient in to get evaluated. And we help out a lot with the family because this is a problem that I see. We'll have a patient that is not really gonna hurt themselves, not really gonna hurt someone else, but they're acutely sick in the sense like they might walk down the street naked or they might not be eating all the time. So they're not directly gonna hurt themselves in that moment, but they're gonna do something destructive to themselves. Maybe they're having a psychotic break or something like that where they're gonna do some kind of behavior that's gonna get them in a lot of trouble. Yeah, or they just can't fend for themselves. I feel horrible for the family because that's the hardest part. They want to help this individual, but, you know, they can't really call 911 because the patient's not going to cut their wrists or not going to hurt themselves or not going to hurt anybody else. In that case, I still suggest you can call 911 if you have to. Try to get the patient to the ER. Sometimes they will go with you. You can get them in the car and you can get them to the ER. And also choose your ERs wisely. Because you want an ER that is connected to a psych hospital. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? 
<sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Right. That just right. makes it so much easier. Because they can go directly to that, that facility. Yes. So, like, the hospitals I work at, we have the psych ER... I mean, the ER and then a psych hospital. So we can evaluate them and then quickly, if they meet criteria, get them into the psych hospital. Then they start getting treatment. If you take them to an independent standalone ER, they might end up sitting in the ER for three days. And what's the point of that? They're not getting any medications. They're not getting therapy. They're not getting groups. So think about that ahead of time if you can. Now, if it's an acute emergency, call 911. Safety is the most highest priority right but so it's not, only like focusing safety first but like you were saying one of these people that's not an immediate threat to themselves but needs that extra support or needs to be in a facility to contain them from doing any other kind of self-harm that's might where you want to find an emergency room that gets them into a psych facility where they can get some immediate treatment tell me a little bit like when a person comes in to the psych unit what happens there? How do you check them in? What could someone kind of expect? Okay, that's a good question because a lot of people, first time in the psych hospital, it can be a little shocking. So the very first thing is safety always comes first. So with that, they think they're going into a regular hospital where they're going to be in a hospital bed and they get their own TV and they get their cell phone next to you. In a psych hospital, you don't. We actually take away all your possessions, you know, cell phone, if you had any kind of knife or anything, you know, like a utility knife. Is it like that. anything that could be harmful or hurt you or kind of pull away your connections? I mean, you're going to get your possessions back. Yeah, we don't permanently take them, but you're not allowed to bring them into the psych hospital. Then also visiting hours are restricted. So with a psych hospital, also what people are confused about is there's limited visiting hours. One is that's for visiting safety. Because when you go to a psych hospital, there can be other individuals that are having a psychotic break, unpredictable. So we can't have long visiting hours. It's just not therapeutic and it's not safe. So the other thing about psych hospitals is we try to make it as close to reality as possible. So we have showers, we have shaving, we have groups, we have TV time, we have outdoor activities we even one place i work at we have a basketball court and ping pong and we play basketball and we play ping pong we play checkers we play games it's much different than being in a regular hospital a medical bed so we have that the rooms are all about safety so like door handles on the doors are certain types of handles that you can't tie anything to the beds sometimes are bolted to the floor because safety comes first for that Right. Well, you're working with people that are in acute crisis and may not necessarily be thinking rationally. They may have some psychosis, right? So they may have hallucinations. They may be hearing voices or they just can be so depressed that taking some kind of radical action to change how they're feeling. I mean, that can make sense. So, yeah, yeah. definitely. I can see why everything like that would have to be really looked at and monitored. Yeah, we look at everything from shower curtains. We have breakaway shower curtains. We have everything we comb through with a fine-tooth comb. I mean, we don't let any screws on the unit. We don't let anything on the unit. We're very strict about that. 
So it's really, it really has to be very, very watchful and mm-hmm. extremely cognizant of anything that could be used to hurt themselves. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So when a client comes in, do they see a psychiatrist? You know, as a nurse, you come in, what do you do? Yeah. So the first thing we would do as a nurse, we advise them as all their rights. Because recently, I mean, if you went back to psych about 50, 60, 70 years ago, individuals that had a mental illness had no rights. And there was actually a joke that prisoners had more rights than mental health That's so patients. true. And it was very true. And then that's why... They developed the 5150 holds, and we have to make sure psych patients or mental health individuals have all the rights that a regular person does. So you have a right to make phone calls. You have a right to talk to family. You have a right to notify people. You have a right to your own clothes as long as they're safe so they can't have strings on them, that kind of stuff. But you're allowed to wear your own flip-flops. You have a right to not go to groups. You have a right not to take medication if you don't want to. And in fact, on a psych unit, compared to any other part in the hospital, you have to get a medical consent, a consent that has to be filled out by the psychiatrist and the patient saying, yes, I agree to take these medications. So it's really like advocating, I mean, which is really great, I think. It's really advocating for the patients. I mean, they're in this acute situation, which is difficult in one way, and yet you also want to give them the autonomy to be able to have power over themselves, yet in a very difficult situation. So that's really awesome to hear that. It's pretty neat, actually, because, you know, like I said, 50, 60 years ago, someone would drop off their aunt or their uncle or their grandma and say, this person's crazy. And then they would be stuck in a psych hospital for months, right. months with no rights. Yeah, and there's so- some great documentaries about that, those old psych units, and it was yeah. pretty depressing. And yeah, and these patients, they were very vulnerable population that, you know, we didn't have the right set up to protect them. Yeah, so now we're advocating for them. And in fact, one of the ways we advocate, so we have the holds, 5150. So the psychiatrist will meet with the patient, and let's say the psychiatrist believes the patient needs to stay longer than the 72 hours. He can put them on a 5250, which is another name for it is a 14-day hold. Right. With that, we have checks and balances in there, which I think this is awesome. So the psychiatrist puts them on the 14-day hold. The hospital has to notify the Department of Mental Health that they're on a 14-day hold, and then we have to get them a PCH hearing, which stands for probable cause hearing, within four business days, right? So then a judge advocate comes, who's sponsored by the court, a patient's rights advocate comes, and the patient can have any family member, any lawyers, whatever they want to be in this probable cause hearing. This probable cause hearing is actually held at the hospital. And so the patient gets to advocate for themselves. And if they can't advocate for themselves, they have a patient's rights advocate. So that patient gets to talk to the patient's rights advocate and says, you know, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't think I need help because X, Y, and Z. And then that advocate has to follow that patient's wishes, whether they believe it or not. So they have to follow them. Then you have the judge, we'll just call him the judge, but he's actually not a judge. It's a court like attorney or something Mm -hmm. like that. And so then they hear both sides. The hospital says, well, you came in for X, Y, and Z. You tried to cut your wrist, yada, yada, yada. 
the patient's rights advocate says, well, he says he did this because of this, and he believes he's no longer a danger to himself. And then you have that neutral third party that says, yes, we agree with the hospital, or no, we don't. So we've had patients that are let go because they didn't agree with the doctor in the hospital. And then we had, you know, a lot of times where they do agree with the hospital. So it's a great little checks and balance in there. Right. It sounds like it really kind of, once again, helps them to have a voice in a system where they could easily get lost and not have those rights. I mean, I think that's really important. Have you ever dealt with where, I guess I would ask the question, like, you know, maybe the client would really benefit from staying, but, and you want them to stay, but you know, they have the right to leave and they leave. And I wonder as a nurse, how do you deal with that issue? And those are the hardest cases because it's easy when somebody is clearly psychotic, hearing voices, seeing things, and it's clearly, you know, the court always decides pretty much with us in the hospital. But then there's those people in the gray area where it's kind of subjective. You know, they're not really psychotic, but they need help, you know, and they don't want to stay or they have, you know, slightly poor insight. Those are the tough ones. And yeah, so that does happen where the court releases them. And usually it's fine. You know, usually they do okay. They don't, you know, really hurt themselves or anything. But they could have benefited from staying a little bit longer. I guess that's always a risk when you're kind of making these decisions. I mean, there's always that gray area. And you make the best decision you can and you follow protocol and everything like that. But no one can predict the future. And Yeah, you can't. That's the other thing. Nobody can predict the future. I mean, we have some patients, we say, oh, they're great to go. And then they end up hurting themselves. And right. we couldn't predict it. Right. You know, ultimately, it's up to the individual. And so you just try to do your best and you try to keep them as safe as possible. That's right. The, that's the main goal. Definitely. What would you say to someone who, you know, they are in this situation where they have a relative that they're fearful for? I mean, I guess you said it kind of earlier. Go to the emergency room. If it's immediate, call 911. Don't do anything. But if not, find an emergency room with a psych hospital attached to it so that they can get that care that they need, I think. Yeah, and there's one more thing that I would like okay. to add to that. With that, those patients that are in the gray area that I had talked about, you know, they're not clearly psychotic, but they need help. As a family member, you can always talk to the pet clinician, which is the psychiatric evaluation team. And as they're going to write their hold, you can say, I have some information about this person. Never lie. Do not lie because it's illegal to lie, but you can tell them, you know, he was showing this behavior at home. He was threatening me at home. If that is true, you always have to tell what is the truth, but you can give that information to the pet team. Right, right. right. So if they need, you know, you can make the picture clear for them by saying, look, here's some added information about his behaviors, his or her behaviors at home. He's threatened suicide or he's doing this or he has access to a weapon of some kind or whatever that he could hurt himself or hurt others and that probably yeah that makes sense to go into the information and definitely yeah obviously you have to be honest and truthful so okay so that would really help i've seen a couple holds where the pet clinician evaluated the person and was like not going to put him on a hold and then family came in and said well he's doing this at home and He's changed his mind because now he has new information to judge and to see if it's correct. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, give her that that information. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you really want to protect these people 
who maybe if they can get through this and they get some added support afterwards, they can really make some positive changes in their life and kind of get through whatever they're going through. If it's a ton of anxiety or a major depressive episode or something like that, they can get through it. Yeah. Yeah. We get a lot of patients that are, you know, depressed over an event that happened and then they have an acute episode where they want to hurt themselves. And so sometimes we get them through that and they never have that depression again because well hopefully we give them tools and resources when they get out of the hospital to deal with the emotions you know like let's say they had a loss or a traumatic event then we give right. them tools later to deal with that what about you know when they're in that unit for the 72 hours how are you helping them okay with that we have a recreational therapist we have actually marriage family therapists we have several therapists we have a psychologist and then we have a psychiatrist so the psychiatrist will come in and he'll assess the patient and see if they need medications or if they're already on medications they might need adjustments or to get those medications started back up so a psychologist does more therapy and will meet with them sometimes one-on-one and chat with them and do talk therapy the recreational therapist will do groups that facilitate, you know, coping skills, that kind of nature. Something like cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT or something like that. Give them some coping skills and stuff like that to help them through it. Yeah, like a big one is group processing. So they do it as a group. They also, we had a dance therapist. So a movement, they do movement therapy. We had music therapy. And then we even had pet therapy where they brought in a dog oh wow that is amazing because you see everybody just lights up they're so excited about the dog and then there's occasionally one or two people that are like i'm so scared of dogs and then they go in their room and they get to play with the dog that one is my favorite i think oh that's really that's really amazing to really help them connect and find a resource there yeah they have a lot of groups and a lot of support and then afterwards we make sure, once we're discharging, we try to make sure that they have an appointment with a the therapist. They continue that. They continue some kind of support group. We even have alumni group where patients that were admitted can come back, I think it's every Wednesday, and they can meet with other patients that have been admitted and went through some type of crisis like that. Right. So, wow, a lot of support. So a lot of aftercare. So this is very acute. I mean, this is long-term care. This is like, let's get through this very intense crisis and help you out and then get you into some kind of aftercare program where you can get that added support and continue on your healing journey. Yeah. Yeah. So we're all about safety and it's usually four to five days is the average length of stay. We have people that stay longer and people that are let go quicker. You know, sometimes it's, we get a lot of drug abuse. So somebody will come in that's pretty psychotic, but they're coming down from vitamins or, you know, hallucinogenics or something. So once that wears out of their system, they're back to normal. Right. So they usually tend not to stay as long. Right. You know, what would you say? Because a lot of people, you know, they get very scared of going to a psych hospital, but if they really need it, this could really actually save their life. Yes. So go, get the help, go to the ER, get evaluated if you need to, because this also will start the ball rolling, you know, because then we can get you therapists. Like if you have a certain insurance, we can get you 
therapists that are involved with that insurance. If you don't have insurance, we can get you, you know, stuff through the state. We can get you resources and get you going. So come in, at least for evaluation, if you're having problems. Yeah, I think that's such an important thing to encourage because, you know, if you look at suicide, it's one of the highest rates of death among young people. And if they can get that help and that support and they can get through that moment, I think we can save a lot more lives. And there's just so much loss around that. So it's great that you're doing this work and that this is a resource for people that people can use. So that's incredibly exciting. Yeah. One of the other things I would like to say, if you're dealing with a child, somebody under 18, take them to an ER that has a juvenile psych unit. Because what will happen, like one of the places I work, we only take adults. So if we have somebody under 18, they come in, we have to transfer them out to one of these other hospitals that takes younger individuals. And that can take two to three days to get them out. So if you're having a child that's having problems with this, once again, safety first, always. So if they're in crisis and you need help, call 911. But if you can take them do some research on the internet. There's all kinds of hospitals out there. Take them to a hospital that's associated with a juvenile psych or adolescence, as they call them. Yeah. Well, thank you, Eric, so much for sharing your wisdom about this. I think, you know, a lot of people don't know what goes on in a psych hospital. They can get really nervous about it. So I'm really thankful that you could share this and this could be a resource for people out there. Is there's any way anybody wanted to contact you how could they get a hold of you that's a good question i don't even know (laughs) all right i'll tell you what we'll put everything in the show notes and get all that information yeah that'd be great they could probably reach out to me i'll put my email in there and they can email me if they need to okay but always get help always get help there's help out there and we're really not bad people aside (laughs) nurses (laughs) no we're good people we'll help you out the best we can Oh, great. Okay. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. We really appreciate all your support. If you'd like to support us, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. That really helps. If you would really like to sponsor the program, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Addicted Mind and become a sponsor. That really helps us offset the cost of making this podcast and the time and effort that goes in to create it. So if this has been helpful for you, please think about doing that and we'll see you on the next episode. See you later. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the addicted mind. I wanted to add one more thing. If you are currently struggling with thoughts of suicide, reach out. You can reach the national suicide hotline at crisistextline.org. Or you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Please reach out for help if you're struggling. There is help available. Don't give up. There is always hope. Oh, hey, it's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. 
We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.